Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Today's episode, I'll tell you what, like get ready to be inspired. We speak with Dr. Andrew Bastauros, and he is an incredible man. So he became, he's a doctor who became ophthalmologist and a specialized eye surgeon. Then you'll hear his story, but he wants to help people in third world countries to be able to see better. And he left medicine to do that and went into public health economics, started building prototypes on how and ways to do eye surgeries in third world countries cheaply and then to diagnose people on the different conditions and ended up building an organization, which is a charity in order to do that. And now he's worked and helped thousands and thousands of people all over the developing world. It was amazing to speak with somebody that has a singular focus and vision throughout his entire life. And in doing so, he's had to acquire so many varied skills in order to work with government and non-government organizations in these countries. And he's had to acquire the skills to start and lead a company, an organization, and to understand everything from the deep medical side to the technology to data science and everything in between. So I was so impressed speaking with him. It's a really great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Here's the interview with Andrew. Hi, this is Felipe. I'm sitting here with Andrew Bastaurus. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Oh, mate, thanks for coming on the show. I am very excited to be speaking with you. And um, yeah, very keen to pick your brain about your journey and how you got to where you are now and want to hear all about what you're doing these days. But I thought we could kick off with a bit of an origin story and an overview of your professional career and um, what your background is in and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So for me, the journey kind of started as a 12-year-old when I was doing pretty badly at school and my teachers liked to remind me that I was. And I was eventually dragged to, to the local optician by my mother to get an eye test because she thought it may be that I'm not seeing and I was just due a regular checkup. And when I went there, the optometrist was shocked at how poor my sight was. I could basically see and focus about that far away. And, uh, and they said, how on earth have you managed for so long? And the thing is, as a child, you don't know what you're not seeing. So I didn't really have normal sight to compare to. So when they put the trial lenses on, the kind of world suddenly came into focus and they, they said, just go and stand outside. So I went and stood on the, uh, the doorway to the shop that I was in and suddenly I could see all these trees had leaves on them and, and I just couldn't believe what I was missing. And I'd resisted the idea of going to the optometrist because I wasn't so keen on the idea of wearing glasses, not because I thought I would see differently, but because I thought I would look different. And as the only brown boy in my school, I was quite keen to not look any more different than I already did. So I've managed to basically avoid an eye test for a good two and a bit years. Wow. But when I did eventually get a pair of glasses, my life completely changed. I, you know, I went from generally failing at school to starting to do really well. Um, my social life changed, my friendships improved. And that same year I was in Egypt, where both my parents are from. I just suddenly noticed no one else was wearing glasses. And also I was at an age where the bubble I was growing up in starting to burst a bit. I kind of realized that I was one of the privileged few to have secure home, family life, school, all of those things. And that, that wasn't true for everyone. And it really started to bother me. It bothered me so much that it started to eat me up a bit. And I, I was just grappling with 
this constant question of why me, but in the why me did I get so much? Why wasn't I born here? Why wasn't I born in different circumstances when I wouldn't have had all of this? Um, wow. I couldn't really connect. I had no language to really express what I was feeling. And it took me quite a few years dealing with this emotion of there being a very different world to the one that I was in. And it was probably late teens where I thought, well, I'm either going to spend my life feeling bad about this or I'm going to do something about it. And so that's where I decided I would commit my life to trying to play some small part in solving this injustice. And in that journey, I started to read a lot more about it, learn a lot more about it and decided I wanted to become an eye surgeon. And partly because so many of the people in the world who were blind didn't need to be. So you know, of the nearly 40 million blind, four and five of them unnecessarily so conditions that were totally treatable or preventable. Wow. And then about a third of the planet, two and a half billion people could see better if they could get a pair of glasses, which is a 700 year old invention. Yeah, still people can't get them. Yeah. So wow. I was thinking, how, how on earth is it we've made all these incredible advances in technology, yet there's a technology like glasses that's 700 years old. There is huge advances in cataract surgery in the last 100 years that means no one should go blind from cataract or not be able to see properly because they can't get glasses, yet we haven't solved that problem. So I guess I became pretty obsessed with trying to understand the root causes of that and trying to do something towards solving it. So that kind of professional journey started as becoming a doctor, going through medical school, qualifying as a general surgeon, then as an eye surgeon. And then when I'd been working as an eye surgeon for around seven years, I was at the point of getting a consultant post in the UK about a year away from that, that I went back to the driver to understand what this was and the, this idea that the world wasn't the same um, everywhere you went. And I had this kind of strong desire to work in sub-Saharan Africa. And so I joined the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to do a PhD to really understand population health, which is very different to individual health. So how do you manage the health of millions of people rather than the individual that's in front of you in consultation room or on the operating table? So it really went from the micro to the macro. So very much quite literally looking down a microscope to operate on somebody's eye, to look in macro millions of people and saying, how do you understand what the barriers are to them getting services? Uh, how do you overcome those barriers? What kind of services are they already getting? How well are they working? And so to really understand that, I kind of went into, into a PhD, um, which ended up moving to Kenya with my young family, establishing 100 temporary eye clinics. And in those 100 temporary eye clinics, we did incredibly detailed eye assessments on around 5,000 people. And in the midst of that, I became all the theoretical knowledge I had around why people weren't accessing eye health became much more real. It went from theoretical to experiential. I'd be seeing people who had been blind for 10, 15 years, totally unnecessarily, because we could do an operation that last 10 minutes and they'd have their sight back. And I'd be seeing dozens of people like that every single day. And that would always drive this same mix of emotion, one of great excitement that in front of me is someone who's been in the dark for 10, 15 years, and tomorrow they'll see. And you know, it was a, a great feeling to know that you could do that. Yeah, at the same time, it was like, why had they waited for so long? They've lost so much of their life. And what about all the people I'm never going to get to see? Because I won't be here forever. And we're literally tip of the iceberg. 
and I trained a team of 15 people. I had over £100,000 worth of eye equipment with me. And this was to do an extensive research project. It was not a sustainable way of building out capacity for sustainable services. And so this idea that I'd had a couple of years earlier started to grow, which was that maybe I could use mobile technology to replace what I was doing. So replacing the need to have a specialist doctor, a specialist team with specialist equipment, in hard to reach places where there's no roads, no electricity, how do you still find the people that you need to and how do you connect them to the people they need to be connected to? And at the time, mobile phones were just becoming the new thing. And as I looked around in the most remote places that we'd work, sometimes four hours away, three hours of which were off-road, we'd get there, there'd be no electricity, no water supply, but there'd be perfect mobile signal. And the mobile signal would be so good that I would be able to do video calls with my PhD supervisors back in London from a rural village wow. in Kenya. So it's got me thinking maybe I could tap into this incredible new network of connectivity, but to deliver the services that were, were greatly needed. And so started basically prototyping a whole range of things from different apps that could measure vision, different tools that could help you see inside the eye. And over a number of years, we iterated and improved and tested it against all the standard kit that I had. And to the point where we had stuff that really worked. And that was really the point at which the journey with Peak began, which I can tell you more of. Man, that is outstanding. I've got so many questions about that part of your journey. But first, I wanted to ask you about that encounter of the theoretical knowledge coming into contact with reality. Were there many surprises? Were there many things that you didn't expect or that worked differently than what was apparent in the theory? Did you have many realignments during that period of going into Kenya and seeing what the reality was like? Yeah, I mean, so many. I suppose the hard thing is if I were to write down the experiences for someone who hasn't had the experiences, it still looks like the theory. So the theory was accurate and did correspond to reality, but it's worlds apart to say the distance is too far for somebody to get to a hospital than it is to spend four hours bumping up and down the road arriving at the clinic, everyone getting off the bus and vomiting because they've been thrown around the, the bus. And that's when you've got a vehicle. So what about someone who's in their 70s, can't see, can't walk, has no money? The idea that it's too far away suddenly takes on a whole new reality. And I suppose just seeing what it would mean to people, it's easy to get lost in statistics. A great Ophthalmologist once said that it's only in statistics that people are going blind by the millions. The reality is everyone goes blind on their own. And I spent a lot of my time working with numbers and understanding how you can improve things. But for the individual, they are an individual in that data story. And it's so crucial not to lose sight of that. You know, I'm so energized and connected to the stories of people's lives I've been involved in. Like, you know, one lady who had been, uh, I think she said it had been 30 years since she'd been able to see. And she lived in this really rural part of Kenya. And her son had basically looked after her for the last 30 years. And a guy called Philip, and she would basically shout to him to come over whenever she needed food or to go to the bathroom or to do anything. And we really had to persuade her hard to come to the hospital because it's such an alien environment to leave the one place you can remember when you could see and be taken somewhere else. So we, we managed to persuade her to come to the hospital and she got really anxious when we got to the hospital, very stressed. And the 
treatment went well. Operation took no more than 10 minutes. The next morning, her eye patch came off and she could see everyone again and she kind of couldn't believe it. And then I had the privilege of going home with her. So on the journey back, probably about 10 minutes from her home, she started to recognize certain landmarks and you know things that had just become memories had were suddenly flashing back to her. She was seeing them again. And then she got to her village and we took her back to her home. And as she stood at the um, edge of her home, she was there looking at this man who was just looking so scared and anxious and he was staring at her and she was staring at him and she didn't recognize him and eventually she looked at him and says Philip and he then realizes that she can see because he had no idea if it was going to work and we had to really persuade him to trust us at which point she remarks how old he now looks and the whole village kind of comes out celebrating but then as soon as that happened, another 10, 11, 12 people who didn't want to come now start coming out saying, we want help as well. And so almost, you know, you hear about you need your early adopters in business and whatever. You also need the early adopters in the community, the people who someone has to take that leap of faith in everything. So they, for them to trust us meant everyone else could then trust and if you plan your services around kind of just going there once and coming back, you don't allow for that trust to build. And those kind of things are really hard to show in data, that kind of connection, that relationship, the number of times you need to keep going back, the way the stories need to be spread within that community to build, to build faith that things can move. So a lot of that is really just comes down to human relationships. And so I've become fascinated with how do you marry that and knowing it's so context specific with getting as many people as possible through to the right services to get their site restored or prevent them losing their site in the first place. What an amazing story. Thanks so much for sharing that. That is incredible. You said that you, you moved there, you moved to Kenya with a young family. What was your family structure at the time? How old were kids? And how did you convince your wife to move? <laughs> how did it all happen? So when we moved, there was three of us, so we're now five. And so it was my wife and my eldest son, who's who was one at the time, and he's about to be nine. And I didn't have to persuade her at all, actually. This was kind of a shared dream in, in many ways. And there had been an opportunity that had come up around a year earlier to go to Tanzania to a place where actually it would have been much easier for us to go. There was a kind of nice house set up there was a team kind of everything was already there it was super safe it had been a really easy place to work and when I came home and explained to Madeline look this by man Kilimanjaro and I, I did the full stuff and she said no nah, it doesn't I don't think it's right and then a few months later this opportunity to go to Kenya came up and I thought ah, I don't know how I'm going to explain this one because it it's in Nakuru it just been the epicenter of post-election violence where thousands of people have been killed hundreds of thousands have been displaced there was no team there's no house there was no one to receive we were start would be starting from the ground up and she went yeah that, that sounds like the right one unbelievable yeah it was not a tough decision for us it just it had all the right ingredients and it was going to challenge us but we wanted to be in a position where we were close enough to the reality to be able to respond to it. I think for our families, our work colleagues, it was a slightly crazy thing to be doing. Um, and then when we got pregnant, they were in the phase of planning was when we were pregnant with, with our eldest and people said, well, obviously you're not going to go now. And we're like, no, no, people do have children in Kenya. It's not, you know. <laughs> and in many ways, actually going as a family opened loads more doors for us because we could 
we could relate with people, you know, there's something about young children and people would come across, come to us in the street and it was partly the way it, the way it translated at first scared us quite a bit, but people would say, give me that baby. Now, what they didn't mean was, I want to keep that baby. They just meant, I want to hold your baby. And so the first few times when people would come up to us and say, give me that baby, we were like, no way. But in time, we realized actually it was a way of people being able to connect with us. And uh, yeah, we made some really beautiful friendships and many of them that are still very alive and active today. Wow. And how long were you there for again? Sorry? Two years. Amazing. And tell me about these conditions that people have that require 10, 15 minute operation in order to improve what is the, I guess, sort of the next level down? What are the groups of conditions? How does that work in the eye? Can you give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, sure. So the two most common conditions that affect sight are one which we call refractive error, which basically means the need for a pair of glasses. And then the other is cataract. So cataract is the lens inside the eye, which is behind the pupil. It's normally crystal clear, but as you get older, it starts to change color and become more rigid and eventually it starts to go a yellowy brown or can go white at that point light stops coming through it and so if you see someone with an advanced cataract and you shine a light in their eye or if you just look closely you see rather than their pupil being black and it looks white the procedure to remove it is one of the most advanced sophisticated brilliant kind of evolutions in microsurgery over the last hundred years which has evolved so far that we can basically do an operation through a less than two millimeter cut in the eye that requires no stitches and we can remove that lens inside the eye by breaking it up and taking it out and then putting inside an artificial lens that replaces that lens that's crystal clear people say it's a simple operation it's simple for the patient but it's incredibly advanced and requires you know, a lot of training to do it well. But it's incredibly safe and very few complications and one of the most cost-effective procedures on the planet. Again, it's a travesty that not everyone gets it. And it's, it's a condition that everybody will get if they live long enough. So in kind of high-income countries, if anyone was getting a cataract, they would probably get it operated on at the point that they started to notice it affecting their vision. So they may start to struggle with watching the television or with driving. And whereas if you're in a place where you don't get services, it just advances and advances to the point where you can't function. So that's the most common blinding condition, so the worst end of vision. And then the most common thing that just makes vision not as good as it could be, so what we call vision impairment, is refractive error, so the need for glasses. And depending on, if you look at the population pyramid, or in terms of worst sight at the top and normal sight at the bottom, and you can have up to a third of the planet who are not seeing as well as they can because they don't have a pair of glasses. Then you've got over 200 million people who are significantly impaired in their day-to-day living because they can't get, a, again, just a pair of glasses. And then beyond that, there are other a whole range of other conditions like infections of the eye, back of the eye diseases like diabetic retinopathy, macular degeneration, glaucoma. These are all harder conditions to treat, but in, in the countries I work, they're of lower importance because we still haven't dealt with all the people that just need a cataract operation and a pair of glasses. So it's not that they're not important, but in relative importance, it's hard to deal with the complex conditions when you haven't dealt with the more simple ones. Exactly. That's incredible. And how long was the journey of prototyping and iterating solutions before launching Peak Vision? There's not an exact timeline, but the, I guess the first things I started putting together were in about 2010 and mm-hmm. moved out to Kenya in 2012. 
ended up throwing most of them away several times because none of them worked in a way or certainly didn't work in the hands of the people they were intended for. So I had things that worked in my hands. That was a big learning for me. As an ophthalmologist, I could make something work. That was very different to having a lay person be able to do it who had no health experience. That's what I was aiming for. So mm. it was really by the end of 2014 that we had the first really viable prototypes. And it was when we started embedding them in a system, we started getting the real value. So the first time we did that was when I was working with a fantastic ophthalmologist who has been part of our team ever since called Dr. Romo, um, who has established a hospital that serves a population of around one and a half million people in Kenya. And he was saying, look, in the schools around me, there are children who I know can't see because I've been sending a team to go and assess them. And normally around 5% of the children in the school will have an eye problem. But the problem is I can't afford to keep sending my nurses when my clinic is so busy and 95% of the children that they examine are okay. So I've had to stop the program. And he said, I've seen what you're doing with uh, these smartphones. Is there something we could do together? So we sat down in a coffee shop and we came up with this concept that we could train teachers to do the vision screening so they would examine 100 percent to find the five percent of the problem and then the team from the hospital would just see the five percent so you basically get 20 times efficiency for their effort and it's we built the whole thing out we added in automated messaging so when a child had been found with a vision problem it would send a message to the parents we also built in a referral notification to the hospital so the hospital could start to manage the capacity so you could start to tailor how quickly do you screen knowing how many people you can manage and then we started building in behavioral change things because we realized in the same way when I was a kid and no one understood that I couldn't see and I couldn't articulate it. When the teacher would do the vision test on a smartphone, it would show them what the child could see by creating a split screen of normal vision versus a level of blur based on the vision test just done. Wow. So suddenly they were seeing what the child could see. And that would just be a penny drop moment for them. So all of these layers we started to put on because we realized if you just identify somebody, you haven't solved the problem. If you tell the hospital that this person is coming, you still haven't solved the problem. If that person goes and gets treatment that works, then you've solved the problem. So all of these layers and different steps you have to take care of. And so we started to build all of that. And once it was working, we ran it as a randomized control trial in which about 21,000 children were screened by 25 teachers. And they did that in nine days. And they found 900 children with vision impairment when doing that. So that became our real, our first real proof point of a systems approach to this that was working. And ever since then, we've expanded on that to add in more and more functionality. So going from that program, the baseline around one in five children found would make it to the hospital. When we added in the messaging and the vision simulator, um, half the children made it. But then it still meant half didn't. So we added in this middle layer, this triage layer, where after so many schools have been examined, a team would go and set up a temporary camp near the schools and then people would come there. So they didn't have to travel so far. Kind of going back to that experience that distances are really hard to cover if you have minimal resources. So bring the services to the people. And doing that, we got over 85% coming. So this kind of continuous improvement of taking down the barriers and then we started applying the same methodology in different places so the next place we did it in was in Botswana where they were getting around 10% of adherence to referral to the hospital so one in 10 people referred turned up and when we put this whole mechanism in we got it up to 96% and the data wow. was so compelling that the government made a commitment to basically adopt this nationally and screen and treat every single school child in the country so now working with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education to roll this out uh, nationwide 
And then we did a similar process in India. But in India, we went one step further. We wanted to see for those who'd received treatment, what happened to them afterwards, because it's an assumption that if you've got treatment, the treatment's worked. This trial question was specifically for glasses only. We didn't look at uh, wider things. But there we found out that half of the children given glasses at three months weren't wearing them. And so we started to say, well, why, why are they not wearing them? What are the social barriers and so on? And so we basically built out this impact pipeline, which starts with of the population that you're aiming for, how many did you find? You don't always find everyone. They may not be there or they may refuse or so on. Of the ones that you find and you refer for services, how many make it? And so how many drop out? And then of those who make it, how many does it work for? And effectively, your impact calculation is how many people out of the base denominator actually get it, get all the way to the end. And everyone that drops out is a barrier that the system needs to address. And what is it about the people that fall out versus the people that don't? And that started to address that question I had, which I said at the beginning, which was the thing that was troubling me was who was I not seeing? Now he's here now, but who's not here? It's easy to base your worldview on what you can see, which is ironic in the world of vision. But the question for me is always, what can you not see? And who can you not see? What's different about them? What barriers do you face if you're a rural woman who's not educated versus a man in the city who's got an education and finances? What's the disproportionate access to services? And so the interview started to really help us see that certain groups are disproportionately affected. And if you don't start directing your resources towards the most vulnerable, you'll never make the kind of impact you're aiming for. But if you don't see that, you can't respond to it. And so that's become our product, basically. It's the ability to equip partners with the ability to see their population and see what change they're making in it and then respond to where the pipe is leaking. Amazing. Man, it's so rare to meet somebody that has had such a consistent, unified direction, sort of like single mission in life. And what's so interesting is that in order for you to create the change and the impact that you want, you've had to venture to so many new areas, going from a surgeon to population health to sub-Saharan Africa, to understanding how people make decisions, what are the barriers to adopting new products, new services, and then understanding the behaviors of people after the treatment is offered to them. It is a very wide and varied range of skills, which is generally when I would think of people having a single focus for so much of their life, I would have expected and thought that that would mean continual specialization across one path. But in your case, I can see it all clearer that it means that you have to go quite broad while staying true to the impact that you want to change. How have you found jumping into all these new and different areas along the journey in order to get the impact that you are after? I've loved it. Someone asked me a while back, was it scary to give up becoming a consultant ophthalmologist? Because that was, you know, yep. like the point of security for life, status, all the stuff that would have come with it. And you're and, right and there, like well, here. The reality is I was scared about doing that and having wow. that certainty of what every day was going to look like. I didn't feel comforted by knowing I was going to be financially secure, by knowing all of these things. And I just wasn't driven by that. I needed a sense of purpose, that thing in the morning that I would get up and feel excited about being awake and that I had something bigger than myself to contribute to, rather than just 
keeping going was not enough for me to keep going. So I needed something beyond that. And it's taken me on an incredible adventure of learning. I've learned so much in the last decade from all the clinical aspects of eye surgery and amazing kind of epidemiology I've had to grapple with and understand and understanding population dynamics and then behavioral change and then building a team and learning how do you lead a team and now I've got nearly 40 people of complete cross-discipline and then also a research team at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. How do I build my leadership skills to support so many able and brilliant people who can do the things that I can't? So how do I give them clarity of direction? And I've loved it. I've loved having to understand things like the financial health of our organization. You know, I could barely manage my own current account for never mind now having to keep an eye on cash flow. And then in times like this of uncertainty, understanding my financial levers, but not being driven by them, knowing they are mechanisms to support the mission. They are not the mission. I suppose that the unifying thing has always been a clarity of purpose, of which everything else has been a, a tool or a vehicle towards it. And it's gone, you know, things have gone from what we're doing in peak to global advocacy campaigns, art exhibitions, bakeries that fund local eye care in Kenya, a kind of whole range of different things, but they've all had this commonality basically in trying to break down some of today's injustices. That's amazing. And can you tell us a bit more about what the product actually looks like in a bit more detail? So there's a smartphone component. What is that piece and versus the rest of the overall system? Sure. Yeah. So it's a combination of um, a managed service and then a software product. In the service, we would work with partners, whether that's government, NGO, or a major eye hospital, to understand the need of the population. So we always start from the perspective of what is the problem in the population that needs to be solved, which is mm-hmm. nuanced but different from what is the problem for the service provider. Because you can solve mm-hmm. the service provider's problem, and that doesn't necessarily mean, mean you've solved the population's problem. We have tools that help understand the proportion of people with a problem in the population and break it down into a whole lot of detail. And the tools that do that are similar to the tools that then solve the problem. And so our process is all around understanding the problem, understanding what the services currently are doing towards contributing to it, seeing what the gap is, and then making plans to close the gap. But the plans to close the gap are very iterative. So rather than having a three-year plan, it's very much kind of the agile process, but in a public health system. So start solving the problem, see what the data shows you, change, pivot, do what you need to do to continually respond. Um, And what it looks like on the ground is a team of screeners um, who are using smartphones or tablets to identify people. And the software that they would be running would have our built-in vision test, which has an algorithm so that the examiner just has to respond to the way somebody's pointing to what they see on the screen. And the examiner swipes accordingly. And then the algorithm automatically records if that person is seeing well or not. And then it'll ask them some questions that they'll ask the patient. It then guides them to say whether this person needs to be referred or not. If they don't, then it records no further data on them. If they do, then it will record some information to make sure we can track them through to the services. At the next point of that patient's journey, whether that is at a health centre or a small hospital, would be other people working with smartphones or tablets where they'd have the list of the people who'd been found and were expected to come. And they would then record what happened when they came. So it's not an electronic patient record, but it's tracking that patient's journey. So it's a patient journey record more than Mm. patient record in that way. And it 
will just mark that they arrived and the key decisions that were taken, whether they needed treatment, whether treatment was given, or they needed to be referred further on. And so at each point in the journey, there are people using our software to capture whether people made it and what the outcome was at that point. And then on our admin part of the software, you can get the individual view, but you can also get the population view. So kind of going back to those two different views that you constantly need to have is the individual matters, but you need to make strategic decisions at a population level because you've got limited resources. So you have to work out what's the best for the most people that you can do, whilst also being able to tailor decisions to the individual. So it gives you that level of ability mm. to zoom in and zoom out and see where people, where is the pipe leaking, generate reports so that you can share that with partners and we'll work with our partners to help them do that. So they can bring the stakeholders together and say, look, we're putting all of the, this resource here, but 80% of the people we're finding, they don't turn up anyway. So actually, this is not a clinical problem. This is a transport problem, or mm. this is a sensitization problem, or some other thing. If we think we start providing transport, more people will come, then there's the ability to test that. So, okay, well, let's provide transport and look what happens. Let's not wait two years and do a monitoring and evaluation thing. Let's just see if it works. And so... It really is a combo of software and services. And over time, what we're looking to do is put more and more of the intelligence that's in the services into the software to make the whole thing more scalable. So at the moment, the kind of, if you like, limiting factor is our capacity to do the service side. And we're looking to see how can we bake more of that into the software so that more and more of it is in control of the people who are deploying it. And everything that's happened with COVID is forcing us to really look at how we can move to all of the work that was done in country and face-to-face -face training and facilitation of design. How do we move all of that to be online? So that's kind of a, a short-term focus for us now is to rapidly develop that infrastructure. And how much of that infrastructure is on the cloud server side How and versus how much is done on the device? Sorry to ask the geeky technical question, uh, but curious to see how that part of the product works. Sure. So for any given program, they'll have an instance on the cloud that is for that program specifically. And so they'll get two things. They'll get what we call our admin view, which is the overview. Yeah. And from there, you can control all the different users and set up their different capabilities and rights within the system. And then we have capture, which is the software where people are capturing data out, out in the field. And all of that is managed on the cloud and it can all work asynchronously. So it can all work offline. A lot of the environments we work in, um, we can't guarantee constant connectivity. So work can happen offline and as long as they periodically get back online, then all the data syncs back up again and it, it connects all the pieces together. So you, we've got a kind of range of installed software on people's devices plus a, a cloud-based instance for that program. And then around that is the service support to A, get them using the software and then B, helping them translate the insights that are coming from it. And actually a huge amount of the work is not software. It's all relationship management because with all of this stuff, if You've got so many different actors in the system who are contributing mm. to solving the problem. So, so much of the work is aligning everybody to ensure everyone's facing in the same direction. So then the software can add value. But if everyone is pulling in different directions, there is no software solution for that. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Like how you get all those players aligned and how do you get 
sort of like new contracts, I guess, like new opportunities to help in new areas in new countries and going through a process of aligning everyone sort of before and after that contract in order to deploy your product. Can you give us an overview of what that complex process looks like? So the first thing we would do is a, a needs analysis for a place. So the focus for us is always who are the people we're serving. And so we need to know who they are and what the problem is. Once we've done that, the next thing we look at is who's already serving them, who's doing what, what are their relationships to it, and are there any existing combining factors that mean they all meet together for certain things or they're all naturally grouped. And then we would look to work with somebody. So rather than us lead the process, we'd look for somebody in country who already holds those relationships, and then we'd work with them to equip them kind of with either our facilitation and then and then move that on to our our software solutions. And that has been an evolution over the last few years because we used to be the ones doing it on the ground. And we've realized mm. that's not going to be scalable. And there's already lots of great organizations and great teams doing amazing work. So rather than us coming and being another team alongside them, it's actually how can we be behind them? How can we support them to do more with what they already have? So a lot of the work is around identifying champions and leaders and then equipping them. And the thing is an alignment. Is their priority to serve the population? And if it is, how do we go about doing that? The kind of funding of it is complicated because the countries we work in are generally low income or low to middle income, which means a lot of it has to either be government funded or NGO funded. So we, we work with some great NGOs who you know, have been in this game a long, long time, much longer than we have. So in many ways, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of, of giants here, supporting great work they've already done, but trying to help move the dial towards there not being a need for external support. And um, so trying to work with government to build up capacity to do it. But a kind of the sustainability drive here is a long journey, decades to build up that capacity. But you know, where we have the energy to do that, and we're where so we're just trying to work with as many solid local partners and then all of their stakeholders they need to help them, NGOs, governments, insurance providers, to ultimately serve the population. It always comes back to the same thing is there has to be a common thing to everyone. And generally people won't dispute that serving the population is not the right thing to do. And so that's the thing that helps us work with everyone on that common common vision. And then we just data is really important because data drives decision making. You can't unsee what you've seen. So a lot of our role is then helping see the reality and then um, it's very hard to ignore it once you can once you can see it. Amazing. That is fantastic. And how can people, the audience, how can they help? How can they either get involved or or assist in any way? Is there anything that any of the listeners could do? Yeah, probably a, a couple of things, actually. One would be um, we're always looking for mission-driven, talented people. So over the next months, we're looking to expand our product team. And so people who have experience in this area and feel they could add value there, then we're likely to be looking to recruit. Um, obviously, there's uncertainty in the current environment. And so we're having to be careful with long-term recruitment. So there'll certainly be at least some short-term positions. And then the other is if anyone out there happens to have plenty of spare money and they would like to send it our way, then we'd happily receive it to continue funding the, the development of the product, but also primarily to ensure we can give it to partners uh, as low a cost or no cost to get it out there and help as many programs as possible. That's amazing. 
And where is the best place to go online to find information about any of those two ways that people can help? www.peakvision.org and P-E-E-K for Peak. And on there, there's um, it can either the donate page or the uh, kind of work with us bit on there as well. So always happy to hear from, from people. I love it. We'll include the links on the show notes as well. Andrew, I am blown away by everything that you've done and that you're doing. It's amazing, man. It is truly incredible to be making such radical differences in so many people's lives and to have done that continually over so long and to build up this, this organization that is fueling that outcome to for it to happen more and more. I take my hat off to you. And uh, man, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey. Please keep doing the great work that you're doing. It is very necessary and truly incredible. And very inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that and for everything you do. Thank you. Thanks, Philippe. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.